Jermaine Tambellini shoots and scores. It comes around to Jeff Tambellini at the near side. Pandora's box, a box of chocolates Would I know To stay away What's it? Pandora's box, a box of chocolates Would I eat them anyway? Cause every time I have half a mind to leave you, babe That means I have half a mind to stay It's Pandora's Lunchbox on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Good evening, this is Mike. Pandora's Lunchbox is a show about food and culture. Every Thursday evening at 6.30, food, culture, songs about food, the whole bit. And I just heard the sad news that Russell Johnson, who played the professor on Gilligan's Island, has died. He was 89 years old. He played the role of Professor Roy Hinckley, And according to Wikipedia, he was a high school science teacher born in Cleveland, so good Midwestern stock. His principal expertise was as a botanist, this is the character now, whose purpose in joining the ill-fated voyage that stranded the castaways was to write a book called Fun with Ferns. Many of his inventions, says here, including a method for recharging the batteries in the ubiquitous radio, utilized coconuts and bamboo, both of which were in plentiful supply. No more coconut and bamboo radios, I'm afraid. This was parodied in Roseanne, by the way, when one of the characters playing the professor stated, one of the characters in the professor in Roseanne, they had a professor, anyway, stated after they crashed, this hole on the boat defies all of my advanced knowledge. To fix it would be impossible. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'm going to create explosive fillings out of sand. In the parody movie Back to the Beach, a character played by Bob Denver, and obviously based on Gilligan, mentions knowing a guy who could build a nuclear reactor out of coconuts but couldn't fix a two-foot hole in a boat. Well, that's just the character. But when it comes to real character, thank you, Russell Johnson, for being who you were and who you'll continue to be. Russell Johnson, professor from Gilligan's Island, has died at the age of 87. No more coconut radios. But... I have some food news locally speaking. First of all, though, that is a tragedy that he's passed on. But I want to talk to you today in just a moment about possibly the weirdest tragedy in American history. It was truly a tragedy. Actually, people died in this thing. But it was also weird, and it involves molasses. So, But first of all, some news locally. The Out Loud Chorus is presenting dinner and a movie tomorrow and Saturday. The chorus promises songs about food and music from the movies. Did you say songs about food? What a strange idea. The Out Loud Chorus is going to be at Washtenaw Community College at Towsley Auditorium, Friday and Saturday at 8 p.m. And this caught my attention from Morning Edition on NPR. Australia's National Science Agency Science Agency is hoping to shed light on colony collapse disorder, where honeybees mysteriously disappear from their hives. In the biggest study of its kind, researchers attached tiny electric sensors to 5,000 bees. And how do you get glue on these microchips on the bees without getting stung? You refrigerate them briefly to put the bees to sleep. And those bees who were especially hairy got a shave before they got their sensors. So you don't want to get stung unless you're this guy who was heard in the background of the study taunting the bees. When a little something like this. You better stun me, stun me, stun me, stun, stun me with your honey gun till my living daylight gone. Stun me with your honey gun. 
Yeah, that's Nick Lowe, actually. He's not Australian, and he really wasn't a part of that study, but he wanted you to stun him with his honey gun. That's from his album Party of One, which rhymes with honey gun. And those guitarists, man, that could have been either Ry Cooter or uh, it could have been Bill Kirchin, the musicians on that record, several guitarists on the record. Bill Kirchin, of course, of the Ann Arbor-originated Commander Cody and his Lost Planet Airmen. Now, January 15th, 1919, 95 years ago yesterday, I want to go right to this Scientific American article because this really sums it up. It was an unusually warm winter day in Boston. Patrolman Frank McManus picked up a call on Commercial Street, contacted his precinct station, and began his daily report. Moments later, he heard a sound like machine guns and an awful grating. He turned to see a five-story high metal tank split open releasing a massive wall of dark amber fluid. Temporarily stunned, McManus turned back to the call box. Send all available rescue vehicles and personnel immediately, he yelled. There's a wave of molasses coming down Commercial Street. More than 7.5 million liters of molasses surged through Boston's north end at about 55 kilometers per hour in a wave about 7.5 meters high and 50 meters wide at its peak. All that thick syrup ripped apart the cylindrical tank that once held it, throwing slivers of steel and large rivets in all directions. The deluge crushed freight cars, tore engine 31 firehouse from its foundation, and when it reached an elevated railway on Atlantic Avenue, nearly lift lifted a train right off the tracks. 
A chest-deep river of molasses stretched from the base of the tank about 90 meters into the streets. From there, it thinned out into a coating one-half to one meter deep. People, horses, and dogs caught in the mess struggled to escape, only sinking further. Ultimately, the disaster killed 21 people and injured 150 About half of the victims were crushed by the wave of molasses or by debris or drowned in the molasses the day of the incident. The other half died from injuries and infections in the following weeks. A long ensuing legal battle revealed several possible reasons for the flood. The storage tank had been filled to near capacity on July 13th. That was a long time before, six, seven months ago, and the molasses had likely fermented, producing carbon dioxide that raised the pressure inside the cylinder. The courts also faulted the United States Industrial Alcohol Company, which owned the tank, for ignoring numerous signs of the structure's instability over the years, such as frequent leaks. Now here's something you need to know from Scientific American about molasses. A wave of molasses does not behave like a wave of water. Molasses is a non-Newtonian fluid, which means that its viscosity depends on the forces applied to it as measured by shear rate. Consider non-Newtonian fluids such as toothpaste, ketchup, and whipped cream. I know you've probably been already considering toothpaste, ketchup, and whipped cream earlier today. Well, think about it again. In a stationary bottle, those fluids are thick and goopy and do not shift much if you tilt the container this way or that way. When you squeeze or smack the bottle, however, applying stress and increasing that shear rate they're talking about, the fluids suddenly flow. Because of this physical property, A wave of molasses is even more devastating than a typical tsunami. In 1919, the dense wall of syrup surging from its collapsed tank initially moved so fast, fast enough to sweep people up and demolish buildings, only to settle into a more gelatinous state that kept people trapped. Physics also explains why swimming in molasses is nearly impossible. One can predict how easily an object or an organism will move through a particular medium by calculating the relevant Reynolds number, which in this case takes into account the viscosity and density of the fluid, as well as the velocity and size of the object or organism. The higher the Reynolds number, the more likely everything will go along swimmingly. The Reynolds number simply... This is getting really complicated, I'm afraid, but we're going to listen to some music now and think, have a moment of silence for the victims of the Great Molasses Flood of 1919 in Boston. We'll also hear a song about molasses here. This is from Ann Arbor's Mad Cat Ruth from his album Harmonicology. Says here on this CD, molasses crawl, slow, slow, slow like molasses in January. How wrong that can be.
kind of a molasses death march, wasn't it? Was that macabre of me to even say and think? Well, you know, okay, that was, uh, well, that was Mad Cat Ruth from his album Harmonicology and Molasses Crawl, Sigh, the, the Great Molasses Flood of 1919, a wave of syrup swept through the streets of Boston, and Fluid Dynamics explained why it was even more devastating than a typical tsunami. It was a lot to do with a Reynolds number, but I don't think they were thinking about that Reynolds number. There is, a, there is, from the Bostonian Society, a plaque commemorating the January 15th, 1919 molasses disaster, which featured a 40-foot wave of molasses buckling elevator railroad ta- elevated railroad tracks, crushing buildings, and inundating the neighborhood. A moment of silence for those folks, ladies and gentlemen. Now, this, it's, it's going back in time to a, to a writer of a while ago, Carl Sandburg. I haven't. I don't think I've read any Carl Sandburg before on my show, but he wrote a book called Rutabaga Stories. Rutabaga Stories Part One is a group of stories for his daughters, and I want to read a little bit of these for you. This came back. This is back in 1922 that he wrote for his daughters, and I have a story here. I'm going to read a part of for you, called Three Boys with Jugs of Molasses and Secret Ambitions. Are you seated comfortably? In the village of Liver and Onions, if one boy goes to the grocery for a jug of molasses, it is just like always. And if two boys go to the grocery for a jug of molasses together, it is just like always. But if three boys go to the grocery for a jug of molasses each and all together, then it is not like always at all. At all. Eat a piece of pie grew up with wishes and wishes working inside him. And for every wish inside him, he had a freckle outside of his face. Whenever he smiled, the smile ran way back into the far side of his face and got lost in the wishing freckles. Meanie Miney grew up with suspicions and suspicions working inside him. And after a while, some of the suspicions got fastened on his eyes and some of the suspicions got fastened on his mouth. So when he looked at other people straight in the face, they used to say, Meanie Miney looks so sad-like, I wonder if he'll get by. Miney Mo was different. He wasn't sad-like and suspicious like Meanie Miney, nor was he full of wishes inside and freckles outside like eat a piece of pie. He was all mixed up inside with wishes and suspicions, so he had a few freckles and a few suspicions on his face. When he looked other people straight in the eye, they used to say, I don't know whether to laugh or cry. So here we have him, three boys growing up with wishes, suspicions, and mixed up wishes and suspicions. They all looked different from each other. Each one, however, had a secret ambition, and all three had the same secret ambition. An ambition is a little creeper that creeps and creeps in your heart night and day, singing a little song, Come and find me, come and find me. The secret ambition in the heart of Ida Pisapai, Meanie Miney, and Miney Mo was an ambition to go railroading, to ride on railroad cards night and day, year after year. The whistles and the wheels of railroad trains were music to them. 
Whenever the secret ambition crept in their hearts and made them too sad, so sad it was hard to live and stand for it, they would all three put their hands on each other's shoulder and sing the song of Joe. The chorus was like this. Joe, Joe broke his toe on the way to Mexico. Come back, broke his back, sliding on the railroad track. One fine summer morning, all three mothers of all three boys gave each one a jug and said, go to the grocery and get a jug of molasses. All three got to the grocery at the same time, and all three went out the door of the grocery together, each with a jug of molasses together, and each with his secret ambition creeping around in his heart, all three together. Two blocks from the grocery, they stopped under a slippery elm tree. Eat a piece of pie was stretching his neck, looking straight up into the slippery elm tree. He said it was always good for his freckles, and it helped his wishes to stand under a slippery elm tree and look up. While he was looking up, his left hand let go the jug handle of the jug of molasses, and the jug went ka-flump, ka-flumpity-flump, down on the stone sidewalk, cracked to pieces, and let the molasses go running out over the sidewalk. If you've never seen it, let me tell you, molasses running out of a broken jug over a stone sidewalk under a slippery elm tree looks peculiar and mysterious. Eat a piece of pie, stepped into the molasses with his bare feet. It's a lot of fun, he said. It tickles all over. So Meanie Mai and Miney Mo both stepped into the molasses with their bare feet. Then what happened just happened. One got littler, another got littler, all three got littler. You look to me only big as a potato bug, said Eat a piece of pie to Meanie Miney and Miney Mo. It's the same like you look to us, said Meanie Miney and Miney Mo to eat a piece of pie. And then because their secret ambition began to hurt them, they all stood with their hands on each other's shoulders and sang the Mexico Joe song. Off the sidewalk, they strolled across a field of grass. They passed many houses of spiders and ants. In front of one house, they saw Mrs. Spider over a tub washing clothes for Mr. Spider. Why do you wear that frying pan on your head, they asked her. In this country, all ladies wear the frying pan on their head when they want a hat. But what if you want a hat when you're frying with the frying pan, asked Eat a Piece of Pie. That never happens to any respectable lady in this country. Don't you never have no new style hats, asked Meanie Miney. No, but we always have new style frying pans every spring and fall. Well, it goes on like that. Carl Sandberg from Rutabaga Stories. That is an excerpt from Three Boys with Jugs of Molasses and Secret Ambitions. It's all about being in potato bug country and molasses and what happens to them, and they got really small and things like that. Carl Sandberg. Well, now you know. I think there's a cosmic collection connection between that. I know they were riding on a train. They, they want to ride on trains, and I guess I will give away that they did end up riding on a train in potato bug land. And a train, in fact, was hurt, injured, what do you want to call it, by the molasses flood in Boston. So it's all very connected. This is Pandora's Lunchbox, and I think that pretty much explains everything. However, I do want you to know that in Tecumseh, Michigan, there's going to be an ice sculpture festival this weekend. If you missed the one in Plymouth this Friday and Saturday in downtown Tecumseh, there will be ice carving demonstrations, dueling sculpture carving, hopefully not dueling sculptures, really heavy ones, really sharp ones, interactive ice sculptures, I'm not sure how that works, a chocolate walk, a children's craft, children's craft, craft activities, lost arts demonstrations, live music and bell choir performances, ice skating at Adams Park, and much more. So that's all at Tecumseh. Tecumseh is about 45 minutes southwest of Ann Arbor, the Tecumseh Ice Sculpture Festival this Friday and Saturday in downtown Tecumseh. So if you see an ice man, what do you do? Maybe you can ask uh, Blind Blake what he thinks of that. Hear that ice man hollin', he don't mean us man no good. 
that ice man hollin', he don't mean us man no good. Every back door he goes to, he wrecks the neighborhood. That's Blind Blake from the album Best of Blind Blake. Classic recordings of the 1920s, and that was Iceman Blues. Now, this is Pandora's Lunchbox. You see, Arwolf will help us in facing the music in five minutes, but in the meantime, a little bit more about molasses. Molasses on the street is not always a bad thing. This is from the Wall Street Journal from five years ago. Up to date on Pandora's Lunchbox always. A maintenance superintendent for the Washington State Department of Transportation has been mixing desugared molasses into salt water, creating a gooey mixture that can keep roadways clear for three or four wintry days, he said. The mix consists of molasses from a local supplier, calcium chloride and brine donated by a local dairy company. Mm-hmm. He'd been experimenting with the right proportions and ingredients for several years, blending them in a 1,000-gallon vat and dispersing the liquid with the same salt trucks. He first used it last year on a busy mountain pass in southwest Washington. 
This season, being 2009, the, station, the state's Department of Transportation has been spreading the solution throughout 11 counties, up from one last winter, with the help of a new automated system that can churn out 5,000 gallons of it in an hour. It has come in handy during a particularly... I don't have the rest of the sentence there. It has come in handy during a particularly... That's all you need to know. So, molasses in the streets can be a good thing, can actually save people's lives in some situations. So, that is a happy ending to that story, kind of. Other news, Chuck E. Cheese's owner has agreed to a $950 million buyout. I didn't know Chuck E. Cheese was such a wealthy man, but the parent company of the Chuck E. Cheese restaurant chain has agreed to be acquired by an affiliate of Apollo Global Management for about $950 million. Founded in 1977, Chuck E. Cheese restaurants are known for their mix of games, play areas, and terrifyingly robotic characters. I just added the terrifying part. The chain has been struggling to lift sales even after a makeover for its rodent mascot in 2012 that was intended to refresh its outdated image. The restaurant was founded by Nolan Bushnell, one of the founders of Atari. Did you know? Its mascot has undergone various changes over the years. At one point, its personality was depicted as a lovable thug from New Jersey that sometimes held a cigar, according to fan site showbizpizza.com, a website that I frequently check into for information of importance. That lovable thug from New Jersey, that's right. Yeah. This has been Pandora's Lunchbox. I've been Mike. And once again, just want to remember the Ice Sculpture Festival is in Tecumseh. Tecumseh is about uh, 45 minutes southwest of Ann Arbor. That's going to be this Friday and Saturday. And ice carving demonstrations, dueling sculptures or something like that. Uh, It looks very dangerous and lots of fun for small children. But you might check that out. You might consider that. And also the Out Loud Chorus presenting Dinner and a Movie. The chorus promises songs about food and music from the movies. That's at Washtenaw Community College at Towsley Auditorium, Friday and Saturday at 8 p.m. I've been Mike for at least a half an hour. There's not much can be done about that, but thank you for listening. Arwif will be here in just a few moments. In the meantime, let's go out on a song from Mad Cat's Harmonicology called Caffeine. This should help warm us up and wake us up. Described by Mad Cat as... A Spike Jones meets The Ventures playing jaw harps meets Jimi Hendrix meets Sonny Terry sort of a thing, which is exactly what I would have thought of. Thank you for listening. Keep on doing that. This is WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Enjoy the caffeine.
It's 7 o'clock by our reckoning. This is WCBN-FM Ann Arbor, 88.3. No more, no less. Time for Face the Music. Thank you, Mike, for reading from what I believe is one of the greatest books ever written or printed or distributed in the world. Carl Sandburg's Rutabaga Stories. Strongly recommended for everybody who still cares about books or poetics or children or anything else, or food references. Tonight's Face the Music, strongly, strongly influenced by the fact that the River Raisin Ragtime Review is holding their third annual ragtime extravaganza with burlesque, vaudeville, and lots of hot jazz and novelty ragtime and entertainments from the early 20th century. This weekend, Saturday, January 18th at 8 p.m. at Ann Arbor's historic Michigan Theater. Uh, Butch Thompson will be there. William Pemberton and his tuba directing the River Raisin Ragtime Review. Also, Bolcom and Morris and James DePogny and a whole bunch of other fine people. To rub that in, uh, I wouldn't say half of the show uh, is uh, selections from their new album, but much of this next hour's programming is uh, will consist of carefully selected selections from this group's newest and I think best ever album, Animal Fair, Ragtime Music for Children and the Young at Heart. So here's the opening track. You know, any time that you have a piece of music where someone keeps crowing like a rooster, uh, that makes me feel pretty good. This piece is called The Rooster Rag. It was composed in 1917 by someone by the name of Muriel Pollock. <laughs> 